Okay, well, let's pray together one more time, church, as we enter into a time of worship over God's Word. Let's pray. Pray with me. Father, Lord, we call upon Your name and we ask You now for help to bear Your Word. And let us be, Lord, those that not only hear Your Word and do Your Word, but love Your Word. The psalmist says, Your word is my meditation all thy day. Oh, how I love your law. God, we pray that you would give us a hunger and a thirst and a love for your word that never wanes, that never fades away. Down to our last and final breath, give us perseverant love for your word and your truth. Bless us now. We ask for your time, for this time, for for your blessing on this time. We ask that you would be pleased to move among us, Lord, that you would be pleased to accomplish great spiritual work in our hearts by your Spirit, that your Spirit would freely move among us now. Give me a mouth to speak your prophetic word as your Scripture is unfolded. May you be glorified and exalted in all things. We love you, Father. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it's good to see so many of you here on this Thanksgiving weekend as we approach Thanksgiving. It's always great to be in God's house. And um, somebody asked me, are we going to be doing a Christmas service because Sunday Christmas lands on Sunday? And the answer to that question is yes, Christ before Santa Claus. <laughs> Even if it's just me and my wife in here. <laughs> no, I, I, I know that I'll see many of you here on that day, but uh, it's always, I love the holiday season. It's always a festive time and it's always a time to conjure up all of God's faithfulness to us and remember what we are thankful for. And uh, we're thankful for so much today, but um, we have some unfinished business here in the book of Hebrews, but I just wanted to make mention a little bit about my upcoming schedule and the upcoming schedule uh, for our church. Uh, I will not be back in this pulpit, sadly, because I love being in the pulpit. I love preaching and teaching, and I hate being hindered, but we have a very special reason to be hindered uh, in, the ne- in the coming weeks, obviously as Trish is getting ready to uh, to give birth to our baby daughter, um, you know, we, we kind of have to be on our toes now, I guess. And uh, we got to be ready for that. So uh, for the next few weeks, I'm going to be taking off, taking off and, and having a brother uh, Landon next week and be preaching to us. Please come out and support him. Pray for him. Pray the Lord will lead him. Give him a special word for our church. And uh, also uh, in the next few weeks... Uh, our brother Lynn is also going to be preaching. So I will not be back in the pulpit uh, until December the 18th. And so just pray for my wife and I. Pray for strength. Pray for uh, guidance. Pray for a smooth delivery for Trish, of course. Um, and uh, just pray that everything would go healthy and well uh, with our daughter. Um, can't wait for that. That's going to be such a glorious, glorious time. It still hasn't hit me. I'm sure it will hit me. Once she comes. Um, so, but exciting, exciting things coming up. And I'm excited to hear what these brothers are going to preach to us in the coming weeks. So uh, with that, let's read uh, the scripture one more time just to set our focus on the text. Hebrews 
11, verse 20 to 22 is where we're at. And the author of Hebrews focuses our attention one more time on these patriarchs before moving on to Moses. Uh, it says, By faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding things to come. And by faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. And by faith, Joseph, when he was dying, he made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. You know, with each one of these, um, with, with each one of these, uh, 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 people in the Old Testament, we have been given a different example of perseverance that we can add to our to our own lives as models, examples of how we are going to persevere in the faith. And this is no exception. So I want to look at each, each one of these men and derive a different virtue or a different characteristic that we should all be seeking after. Number one, if we take Isaac as our example... What I want to set in front of us is the, the, the importance of leaving a legacy. Leaving a legacy. And I guess we can ask, well, what kind of legacy can we leave knowing that what Isaac was doing in blessing Jacob and Esau, he did that directly through divine revelation. Something we do not have access to. Don't expect God to go speaking to anybody in this church directly through divine revelation. We don't have access to supernatural revelation in that way. However, what I think the essence of the, of the blessing that, that, uh, J- that Isaac left was theological in nature. In other words, he was passing down a blessing. Now look at what it says here carefully. Regarding things to come. Now that's important because that unifies the whole chapter of, of Hebrews because you remember how Hebrews has been putting emphasis upon emphasis upon things that are invisible, things that are not seen. Look at verse 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so when... When, when Isaac is said to bless his children concerning things to come, those prophetic things were yet unseen to the people and unseen to Jacob and Esau. And the whole point of this is not to get into the controversy that arose from Jacob stealing the blessing and the treachery that was involved there. Now, this is something that is really important for the book of Hebrews here at chapter 11, that every person in Hebrews 11 has some sort of fault, some sort of deficiency. So if we're coming to Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, looking for perfect Christians, you will not find them. (laughs) But if you're coming to the book of Hebrews looking for examples and moments in which genuine faith was active and activated in the lives of these people, that is what Hebrews 11 wants us to cling to. And so Hebrews 11 is wanting us to focus on the fact that by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau about a future blessing, about Abraham's seed, about a great multitude. In other words, he was blessing them regarding the promises of God and things that he had not yet seen. Now, I want to talk about parenting today. 
Because I said that Isaac here is leaving a godly legacy. He is passing on the baton of theological tradition. He is giving his sons hope in the promises of God. And brothers and sisters, you and I have a greater advantage, even though you and I do not have and should not expect direct supernatural revelation from God, I have news for you, we have revelation from God right here. And we've no lack of it. We have no shortage of it. Uh, The Bible is enough to sustain us for lifetime after lifetime after lifetime. We'll never come to the bottom of it. What does the psalmist say? I have seen the limit of all perfection, but your word is exceedingly broad. That is to say, you can look at the perfections of fine art, you can look at the perfections of nature, you can look at the perfections of music, you can look at the perfections of all sorts of architecture, what have you. The wonders of the galaxy and creation. But when it comes to the Word of God, in a sense what he's saying is, it surpasses all of that. It is exceeding, brothers. It's got an infinite character to it. We can, we can, we can pound away at the Word of God for a lifetime and never get to the bottom of it. It said that George Mueller read the Bible 200 times on his knees. And I tell you what, if he would have read it 201 time, he would have found something new. Because we'll never come to every insight. But as it is, brothers and sisters, we have a particular insight and with that a particular advantage over Isaac as he is prophesying about things not yet seen, things to come. We have, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, we see the fulfillment of the things that Isaac was predicting. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, As many as are the promises of God in Him, that is Christ, they are yes, and also through Him is our Amen to the glory of God. In other words, when we come to agree and to affirm and to praise God for His glory through Jesus Christ, we see that all things are fulfilled. All promises are complete in Him. Now, Understand this, this is the task that you and I have towards our children. And the children in this church need to be constantly pointed towards things to come. And so if you as a parent are not good at pointing your children to things unseen, then let this be an incentive for you that you not only have to have these things firmly rooted and grounded in your own heart, but you also do it to your children in hopes that one day sincere faith will come to dwell in them as well. Turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I just want to show you a couple of passages on this and the power and the potency of this. My wife and I are expecting our first child you can bet right now we're already praying for salvation. 
And I know that you parents, knowing better than I would, you know that that prayer will pro- is only going to grow and intensify, and it's never going to end until that child's saved. And even then, God keep my child in the faith. And so where does that all begin? Well, we have some, we have some insight into that. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 3 regarding Timothy, Timothy is a wonderful example of a godly Christian man. Something that we want for all of our children. We want our sons and daughters to be godly sons and daughters. And where does that begin? That begins at the earliest possible times of a child's life. And uh, how do you do that? Well, by passing on a legacy. Look at verse 3. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my fathers did. See that? Already we have a already we have a, a posterity, a descendants, a godly lineage, a godly descent, and a going back, a tradition. I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy, for I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that is in you as well. See, I point to this example because Timothy became a leader. Timothy became a a, a founding pastor in the apostolic church over Ephesus. And, um, And he was, Timothy is unique in scripture because he, although he wasn't an apostle, he was a direct emissary of the apostle Paul. He was his apprentice. He was his, he was his pupil, his, he was the one that was next to him. He was a child, like a child to a father. The Apostle Paul had the closest relationship with Timothy. And remember what he says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 18 and following. He says, I have nobody else that even thinks like me except Timothy. Everybody else is interested in their own thing. Timothy is the only one selfless enough for me to entrust these things to. Amazing. Timothy is a remarkable, remarkable young man. And what what Paul is saying here is that much of that is owing to the way that he was reared. That's a glorious promise for parents to hold on to. Now, turn over to 2 Timothy 3. We have yet another clue of this. Why it's so important to leave a godly legacy. To spread the Word of God wide like a net over your children because you never know what and how God is going to use that to bring them up in the faith. It says there in 2 Timothy 3.14, You, however, after people go astray, heretics grow worse and worse, you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them. And who did he learn it from? A school? A seminary? No. It's more foundational than that. And that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures or writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ from the very beginning. From the very beginning, Timothy was entrusted with the sacred scriptures He was in a home that conditioned him theologically. Now, don't get me started on the state of parenting today. If you look at culture, which you shouldn't, what you get, by and large, not all the time, but what you get is an example where kids push their parents around. 
Dad's on the couch. He's the big, stupid stump on the couch that doesn't know anything and no one respects and no one has any regard for whatsoever. And the mom is usually running and, and doing everything and she's in charge of everything. And everything is done in order to enable kids to have as much fun as they want to have the way they want to have it. Uh, that's the culture. Okay, but we don't look to culture to get our marching orders regarding parenting or marriage or anything else. We go to the Word of God. But even in the church, there's always room for improvement. There's always room. I mean, you think about the necessity in our culture today to take the call to leave a godly legacy for our children more serious. Listen, we are entering a time because of the rise of technology that evil is so readily available it's, 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 it's like a plague on our society. It's incredible. I, I watch elementary students walk by my house on the way home. Many of them have this little crystal ball in their pocket called a cell phone. And, and this little, this little five inch slab of glass tells them everything and reveals everything to them. And parents put this dynamite stick in the hands of their kids at, you know, 10, 9, 8 years old, completely unsupervised. And then you wonder why you get reports about children, even in elementary school, showing each other inappropriate things at school. Incredible. Uh, Much parenting is done from a point of total delinquency. Total delinquent neglect and negligence of duty. You know, it just makes me... It makes me very, very, uh, uh, you know, I'm very, very exercised about this today because I think there's so much potential. I guess it's because I get to see these elementary schools in college. And when I see hundreds of students of college still acting like elementary school students, <laughs> and I remind them of that many times, I tell them, you know, you're in college now, you're not in elementary anymore. Even so, I don't know if you guys saw, but I recently had an encounter with a grown man on a college campus telling me that he holds on to his teddy bear and that the teddy bear comforts him and gives him solace and gets him through hard times. This is what our country's producing? 20-year-old men that need a teddy bear? Give me a break. No, the Bible calls us to produce men and women that, 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 that have maturity. I'll show you this. Turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs, please. Book of Proverbs. I was tempted to do an entire thing just on this because as you can see, this is easily, uh, easily a sermon in and of itself. Thankfully, we're going to handle some of this stuff in Sunday school as well. But if you look at Proverbs chapter four, you have the essence of the parent's call. So really focusing in here first on the parents. Like Isaac, who taught his children concerning things to come, you and I have a duty to present to our children theological tradition, truth, doctrinal truth. Look at what Proverbs 4 says. Hear, O sons, the instruction of a father, and give attention that you may gain understanding. See, 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 The proverbial wisdom is kids is not just fun all the time, right? 
I mean, everything that is done for kids, just watch the commercials. Everything that is done for kids is fun, 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 fun. Then you wonder why at 19, 20 years old, they don't take life serious. Because from the get-go, they are conditioned from day one that above everything, mom and dad exist in order to create an environment of fun. That's not good for the wisdom of your kids. He says, I will give you sound teaching. Verse 2. Do not abandon my instruction. When I was a son to my father, tender and the only son in the sight of my mother, then he taught me. You listen to that language. And he said to me, let your heart hold fast my words. Keep my commandments and live. Now turn with me over to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6 as a New Testament corollary to that. And do not be deceived. All child rearing goes back to the command of God. The great fifth commandment in the Decalogue. That, that, that sort of principial command of God, that all-encompassing foundational commandment of God that is cited for us right here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with a promise. And what's the promise? So that it may go well with you and that that you may live long on the earth. I'll give you a personal testimony about that verse. I remember being in the shower, sobbing and weeping over the death of my best friend from elementary school. His name was Philip. We were like brothers, inseparable. But I remember, and I remember questioning God. Why did God take my friend? 21 years old, he went to Vegas to party for his birthday. On the way back, he fell asleep going 100 miles an hour in a car. Two of my other friends got ejected. One got thrown onto the barbed wire fence, snapping his back, putting him in a coma. Philip was the only one wearing a seatbelt, and he was crushed by the engine of the car killed instantly and i remember thinking why and this verse came to mind so that it would go well with you and that you may live long on the earth from as far back as i can remember philip was one of the most disrespectful people i knew towards parents in high school it would be it would be a regular thing for me to walk into philip's house and have to break him and his father up from fist fighting. God has not mocked. Whatever a man sows, he will reap. This promise was not fulfilled because he did not honor mother and father. He did not respect his parents. And his life was cut short. Now, is that the only reason? Certainly not. But it illustrates to us the principle. What God wants in a parent-child relationship. Look at verse 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And this is, this is the reality of it, is that as a Christian parent, to the total antithesis of what we see in culture, 
you, my dear parent, are called by God, number one, to be a teacher, to be a trainer, to be a disciplinarian, to be an instructor of eternal wisdom for the good of your child's soul. You are not, you are not a babysitter. You are a teacher. You are called by God to be the prophet of your home, to teach, instruct, impart life-saving, soul-saving wisdom. I tell you what, if we really cared as much for the souls of our kids as we say that we do, we would not allow our children to view us as just that babysitter that takes care of me and provides me the things that I like so that I can have fun in life. No, we need to recover a biblical vision for what it means to be a godly parent that is imparting wisdom to the succeeding generation. This is what God wants. Matter of fact, if you just look at this verse, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, there are four imperatives that are found, found here. Four commandments. Obey, honor, do not provoke, and last of all, bring up or rear, which means nourish them. How? Through sound doctrine, not by spoiling them. Oh, I tell you that over the years, the, the example that I have seen of parents who give a command to their children that their children are just allowed to completely disregard and go along their way. I know it's tough. I know it's hard work. I know that you're working at it. I know that you're, that you're trying desperately to have obedient children. But I just want to give you a little shot in the arm to wake up to the fact that, number one, you have been given a massive task by God. You think the pastor is the only one that needs to take biblical study serious? You're studying for the souls of your children. They're in your hands. You play a role in this. And you will give a serious account for this. Uh, this is serious. To be a parent has got to be one of the weightiest things in the world. Because these children, you will have to give an account for on the day of judgment. Just like I will have to give an account for this congregation on the day of judgment. We will all, Second Corinthians chapter 5, will have to give an account on the day of judgment for everything that we did, whether good or bad. That includes the way you parented. And so what, what should it be? should be a legacy that is biblical, a legacy that is godly. Talk about disrespecting mother or father. I remember feeling so struck. I read the biography of Jonathan Edwards and it said when Edwards walked into a room, all of his children immediately stood to attention because their father walked in the room. We are so far from that. I'm not saying, hey, go home, start spanking your kids if you don't walk, if you walk in the room and they don't stand up. But you get the spirit, don't you? You get the principle of that. The principle of that is that being a father, being a mother is weighty. And your kids can never look at you as you are some sort of trivial, sort of, you know, you are just this whimsical person. I'm going to count to three and I'm going to come in there. You always count to three and you never come in here. Let that not be, brothers and sisters. 
Let it be that our word carries weight. There's a godly brother that I respect very much whose children are extremely uh, orderly and behave very much. And I remember distinctly that I asked him once why he takes that so serious. I mean, really serious. And that his word, he, he, he practiced first-time obedience. You don't get a second, a third, a fourth time. One time. And then you have to obey. He said, if I'm standing on a street corner and I train my child not to, not to fear my voice, runs out in the middle of the street and I yell for him or for her, they're conditioned to disregard my voice. That'll be on my hands. And he says, I can't allow that. That's just like, makes perfect sense. And that's, I think, the godly biblical standard is that children are given a tradition, a godly tradition, where parents are serious about pouring into their children a, a, a theological truth. That's why in our church we do the gospel project. Because we're teaching your children as long as they're in there. And Sister Amy does an incredible job. I cannot pry her hands off of it. She does a great job. She's insistent on teaching the kids of our church theology. And sometimes I'm almost in awe of what she's teaching. Them. What are you teaching today? Oh, I'm teaching them through the minor prophets. <laughs> Go to another church and see if they're teaching the minor prophets. <laughs> Not likely. But we're setting in front of them the promises of God. So in other words, leave a godly legacy. You want to pierce, you want to persevere to the end in a, in a right way? Leave a godly legacy for your children. It's hard work, but it's worth it. What else should we do? Because I told you, we can stay there all day. We need to look at another example, and that is Jacob. What did he do? I want to say that he maintained a godly zeal. Leaving a godly legacy, maintaining a godly zeal. Because look at what the text says if you go back to Hebrews 11. It says, by faith, Jacob, as he was dying, he blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. Now, it is by faith. Why? Because if you read the account of Genesis chapter 48... What happens is is that Joseph brings the children before the lads, before Jacob, to receive the blessing. And, and Joseph does a remarkable thing. He purposefully puts Manasseh on the right side of Jacob so that Jacob would have to pass the blessing, the, the patriarchal Abrahamic blessing, down to Manasseh. And he puts... Ephraim on his left hand so that he would not receive that blessing. And it says, by faith, Jacob blessed the sons of Joseph. And where is that faith exhibited? It's exhibited in uh, uh, Genesis 48. What does Jacob do? He crosses his hands. He says, not so fast. He crossed his hands because he had received from God somehow direct revelation who the blessing was supposed to be passed over to, to, and it was not Manasseh, it was Ephraim. He would become, Ephraim, the, the son of Joseph, would become synonymous with Israel, the tribes of Israel. And you see that all throughout the prophets, that uh, uh, that, that Ephraim is called Israel. 
because all of the covenant promises came through him. And had Jacob not crossed his hands, he would have blessed the wrong person. But we are being told by faith, this man, this man, Jacob, who we know because all of his dirty laundry is out there for us to see. Some people think, oh, I wish I would have lived during the times of the Bible. Well, be careful because if you did, you might have ended up in the Bible for all your dirty laundry for us to see. Jacob was a heel catcher. He was a deceiver. He was a conniver. He was a self-dependent, hard-hearted, hard-headed sinner that God had to humble as he did in Peniel where he wrestled with God until what? Until God, Genesis 32, put his hip out. For what purpose? So that the only way that Jacob could be blessed by God is if he fell and clung to the Lord. He had no advantage. No way to get ahead. No way to try to pin down the angel of the Lord. He was hobbled. He was crippled, as it were. He was completely incapacitated. All he could do is hang on for dear life. Matter of fact, that's where he's renamed. He went from Jacob to Israel. And what does the word Israel mean? Israel means someone who struggles with God. What's the implication? Is that God overcame him when he struggled with the angel of the Lord. It was, it was in essence him struggling with God, being overcome by God, subdued by God to the degree that God renames him. <laughs> Puts him in his place. Jacob gave this incredible blessing in Genesis 40. And look at the content of it if you go there. Because really, Jacob does two things. Number one, he blesses. Number two, he worships. That's how he maintained a zeal for God. So at the end of his life, Jacob somehow, by the grace of God, Jacob has maintained a biblical zeal for God, a longing for God, a love for God. J.C. Ryle pointed out that old zeal is rare. And what he said is, basically, why is it that many Christians, the older they get, the less zealous they become? It should be the total opposite. Knowing that you are closer, you are closer to the finish line. You're closer to receiving your everlasting reward. And if anything, you should not get all settled in and cozy and into your little, you know, whatever you're into. But you should be going after God, knowing the finish line is coming. The course is almost over. The reward is within reach. So reach out for it. Listen to what, listen to what uh, Jacob says. says, the God, this is Genesis 48, verse 15, just to hear the blessing. He says, the God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, and this, this, is, this is very endearing to me. This is very precious here, what he says. The God who has been my shepherd all my life to this day. I love that because all the ups and downs, all the, the sinful setbacks, all of the obstacles, all the tragedies, all the disappointments, everything that Jacob went through, he could say at the end of his life, literally on his dying breath as it were, he could say, the God who has been my shepherd all my life and the angel who has redeemed me from evil, he says, bless the lad. 
bless them, that my name may live on in them, and that the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac, and that they may grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. What is that blessing? That is a gospel blessing, a covenant blessing that he was blessing them with. Talking about the life of Jacob. Listen to what Kent Hughes says in his wonderful commentary on Genesis. If you don't own it, you need to own it. He says, It had taken Jacob a lifetime of divine discipline to learn that he was only to speak and to do the Word of God. Nothing else, Jacob. We don't need your conniving. We we don't need your manipulating. We don't need you to try to get ahead on your own. Only speak and do the Word of God. Now he dared to trust God and believed his plans were best. He dared to do God's will despite the wishes of his illustrious godly son. Jacob had his anchor in the will of God forever. And what is he saying there? What he's saying there is that much like Abraham, and we saw that right last week with Abraham, much like Abraham, Jacob as well is asked to put God in front of your most precious possession, i.e. your only begotten son. So what does he, what does Genesis say? Joseph became angry at Jacob for switching the hands. It was one switcheroo that God approved of. And Jacob says, I can't do it. God has spoken to me. I know who I'm supposed to bless. I know what I'm supposed to do. And you may not like it and you may not approve it because you've got to understand, flying in the face and defying all traditional convention of that day, you do not bless the younger son over the firstborn. And, and, And Jacob said, it doesn't matter. He knew the promise of God was to continue through the younger son, Ephraim. But he also worshiped. He was a worshiper. What a glorious picture we get here right look at uh, again in hebrews eleven twenty one. by faith jacob as he was dying he blessed each of the sons of joseph and worshiped leaning on the sta- on the top of his staff so there he is jacob on his last breath he's leaning on top of his staff because he can barely hold himself up he's so old and what is he doing with his final breath he's worshiping praise god Bless God with his last breath. In other words, as he came to the end, what was his focus? Well, as Jacob came came to the end of his life, what was uppermost in Jacob's mind was the promises of God, was the glory of God as he worshipped him. By the way, you and I, we're called to do the exact same thing. Listen to what Jude says in Jude verse 20. He says, he says, beloved, building yourselves up in the most holy faith and praying in the spirit. He says, keep yourselves in the love of God. And so this is what I, this is going to lead directly to my final point, And that's this. Not only should we leave a godly legacy for our children, not only should we maintain a godly zeal for God like Jacob. Last of all, we should prepare for Zion. Look at the final verse here. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel 
and he gave orders concerning his bones. Now, I say Zion because Zion is typological in the Bible of heaven. Zion is a reference to Jerusalem. Zion is a reference to the old city, the city of David. Zion is, a, is, is often coupled with the temple of God. But we know, based on Revelation chapter 14 and in many other places, just like Hebrews 12, we know that Zion is ultimately a depiction of heaven. And so, this is what Joseph is doing. He's not preparing himself to go to a physical land. He's not preparing himself just simply to have his bones transferred in an ossuary, you know, a bone box, taken out of Egypt and put into the land of Canaan. It's more than that. Go back to, uh, go back with me to verse 13 of Hebrews. You remember what it says there? Gives us a little bit of a clue of the inner workings of the faith of the Old Testament patriarchs. And what does it say? Verse 13. All these died in faith without receiving a promise, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance, and watch this now, and having confessed they were strangers and exiles on the earth, this is crucial. For those who say such things, make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, going back to the patriarchs, if they had been thinking of the country from which they went out, meaning Mesopotamia, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it was, they, you see that? Circle that. They, 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 the patriarchs, they were desiring a better country that is a heavenly one. So back, even back then, the time of Joseph, the time of Jacob, the time of Isaac, the time of Abraham, as they desired the promised land, they knew that typologically they were desiring the heavenly land. They knew the promises of God are too great to have any sort of physical, temporal, geographical fulfillment in this, in this world, in this earth. They must point to something else. I want to quickly point out three things about what it looks like to prepare from heaven. Observations in the text. Number one, the occasion. Notice the occasion here that that Joseph is dying. This is Joseph knowing that he's dying. And so, brothers and sisters, what I tell you is this, is once again, contrary to popular culture, as Christians... We are commanded in Scripture all the time to think of our death. We are, we are taught even here, the example is prepare for it. Put things in order. Order your life in such a way that demonstrates to the world you are not living for the retirement home. <laughs> right? One of the worst things in the whole world, in the whole world, is the fact that if God tarries or the Lord wills, most of us in here will be sitting on a hospital bed somewhere, breathing our last breaths, and incomprehensibly, they put a television in front of you. Wow. You're on the precipice of encountering Almighty God. And they want to put up the wheel of fortune. They want to put up, you know, the Super Bowl. They want to distract you with some earthly temporal trinket when you are about to meet 
your maker. But Scripture knows this and it tells us to make preparations for this. Jesus says, don't store up your treasure on earth, but in heaven. The occasion is that He is dying. He is dying. And with His dying breath, what is on the mind of this patriarch is the promises of God. That's why it says, by faith. Because by faith, even though he's dying, he knows God's promises are going to be fulfilled. I didn't see it happen in my lifetime, but I'm telling you right now, it's going to happen. And so what I'm saying is this is where you can get into the name it and claim it thing. (laughs) Name the promise of God and claim it for yourself. God is going to do it. Bank on those promises. There is, um, there's not just the occasion of his death, but let's keep the alliteration going. There's also the optimism. There's a tinge of optimism here. And I say optimism only because this is a hope-filled instruction. He says, Joseph made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel. You see that? So he made mention on his dying day that this would happen. Let me read to you that mention. This is Genesis chapter 50. Stay with me. We're almost done. Genesis chapter 50, verse 24. Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from the land to the land which he promised on an oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Note that very careful, Bible students. That the Abrahamic promise, the Abrahamic covenant here is being described as an oath. Covenant oath. So add that to your covenant theology. That's important. Verse 25. Then Joseph made, made the sons of Israel swear saying, God will surely take care of you and you shall carry my bones up from here. He knew that where he belonged exactly what we've been studying, his true homeland, his fatherland. You remember that? was in heaven. And finally, the orders. So it gives, we have here the occasion of his death, the optimism of the fact that he spoke of the exodus and the faithfulness of God. And then finally, the orders. Because he gave orders. And and what it reveals is that Joseph was totally confident that that, that the children of Israel would be taken out of Egypt. And so this is what I'm saying. This is, this is important for us because I want you to die with confidence. Oh, it's kind of crazy, right? What are we doing here? What did you do Sunday at church? I prepared to die with confidence. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Because I don't want you to die in terror. I don't want you to die second-guessing yourself. I don't want you to die doubtful, fearful, wondering, am I going to make it? I want you to die. Don't you want to die peacefully with confidence in the faithfulness of God for you? I want to die with this confidence right here. And his confidence was this. He knew where his rest was found. He knew that his rest was not just in Canaan, but it was ultimately in the new Jerusalem. He knew, as we know now from the book of Hebrews, our rest is found in Christ. 
our rest is going to be consummated in the eternal Sabbath of God's people. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. He knew this was just a prefigure to our heavenly rest. What is He doing? As He gives these orders, what is He doing? He's also encouraging the people around Him. I thought this was amazing. John Calvin says this, that He was sharpening the desire of the nation for redemption. Let me read that to you. Calvin says, in order for his bones to be exported, he had no regard for himself as though his grave in the land of Canaan would be more sweet or better than in Egypt. <laughs> but his only objective was to sharpen the desire for his own nation, that they might earnestly aspire for redemption. He wished also to strengthen their faith, that they might confidently hope that they would be at length, that is at last, delivered. That's exactly the hope that we need. May God strengthen our faith, our hope. May God sharpen our desire for final redemption through Jesus Christ. As we seek to leave a godly legacy, may we impart this hope to our children. And may we sustain a godly zeal for His glory and order our lives in a godly way in preparation for Zion, the city of the living God, where we have our true rest, our true satisfaction, knowing, as Calvin says, that at length we are going to be delivered. Praise God. Let's pray. Father, Lord... I pray that you would show us that the faith of these patriarchs, as, as ancient as it, as it is, as old as these examples of faith are, that they are so incredibly relevant to us today, right now, that we need to leave a legacy like they did. We need to maintain a love and a zeal for your glory like they did. And we need to make preparations, even now, to prepare to be less bound to the temporal things of this world, even as we're going to see with Moses, who considered the riches of Christ greater than all the riches of Egypt. Help us, Lord, to live in light of these glorious promises. We ask Your blessing, Lord, on our time as we fellowship together. Bless our, our meal together, Father. May we, uh, may we fellowship and, and, and partake of a meal together under the understanding that we are in your favor. Bless our church, Father, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.